Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Attention all personnel. Please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Hello, welcome to the September 2019 edition of Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. And this month we're celebrating Mars, reporting from the Clean Room, where Europe's new Mars rover is taking shape, where Richard will completely fail to put on a pair of gloves. It's actually more difficult than it sounds. <laughs> okay. And it was two pairs of gloves. <laughs> okay. Anything to do with rubber? They were rubber gloves, yes. Yeah, OK, well, we'll leave it at that then. We'll also hear about a new Mars Fetch rover. And continuing our Apollo celebrations, go inside an Airstream trailer that protected the Earth from moon bugs. We're at Imperial College London and our guest is Sanjeev Gupta, a professor of Earth science and a scientist on NASA's Curiosity rover. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I was going to describe the room, but I think... Let's just leave it, shall we? It's nice and cool on this very nice un-Mars day. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's as far as we need to go. Uh, Now, Curiosity's been on Mars seven years. I mean, that seems astounding. Uh, How's it doing? It's doing great, actually. We've actually finally reached where we were intending to get to, which was this famous clay-bearing unit. And so that was a key target for the mission because clay minerals are thought to be potentially good targets for capturing and preserving organic matter. So this was one of the key places to get to. And it's taken us a while to get here. Why? Why? I know it's slow, but why? (laughs) Well, it's just taken us a lot of time. So there's been a lot of geology to look at. Obviously, we've had problems with our wheels, wheel wear, holes in the wheels, which uh, which meant that we had to take a change of route, basically. Uh, we couldn't drive the straight. The scenic route. A, A more geological route. And actually, it's been good, I think, because it's enabled us to reconstruct the geology of Gale Crater as we've driven. But also, I think, you know, as scientists, we're a discovery-led mission. And so if we see new things, exciting things, we want to investigate them. You wouldn't be able to forgive yourself if you ignored some really exciting rocks and drove on. So there's that balance you have to keep in a rover mission. Now, I said you were an Earth scientist, and the point really is you're applying the processes on Earth, the geological, the geographic processes on Earth, to Mars because it it was very different. Yeah, so I think I'm a geologist by training and most of my training has been field geology on Earth looking at sedimentary rocks. And on Mars, what we're looking for is sedimentary rocks that formed habitable environments in Mars's ancient past. We're talking about three and a half billion years ago. So really a long time ago. And the trouble is, it's no good just finding organic matter or life Because people very quickly, after the initial excitement, they're going to say, so what was the context? How will we find it again? 
where did you find it? What is the geology? What was the climate at the time? And so the context is really important. And so myself as a sedimentologist and my colleagues on the team, basically we spend most of our time, whilst the chemists are doing fancy things with instruments, what we're doing is we're looking at the imagery from the many rover cameras and trying to reconstruct the ancient environment. So we're trying to look at these rocks and say, was this an ancient river environment? Were there lakes present? Or was this a dry, dusty, wind-blown environment? And it's not easy to do that. I was going to say that if you're doing this all remotely based on the images that you get. But it's even hard on Earth, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing is that actually... um, Geology has a bit of an art to it, actually. So it's not that there's numbers written on the rocks which tell you or an equation you can easily apply. Yeah, it's like a bit like being a detective and you have to piece together the pieces of evidence that you're seeing in the rocks. And obviously, as you can imagine, with a large team, we all have very different opinions. And so we argue it out quite a lot, actually. Well, that sounds, that sounds fun, I would say, as yeah. somebody who likes a good Barney. Yeah, there's That's... a lot of good Barneys, I could say. Oh, excellent. Now, this is the eighth anniversary, can you believe it, of the Space Boffins podcast. When we started, we were keen to cover space from a, a UK perspective. In fact, we launched at the first UK space conference. Well, thanks to renewed support from the UK Space Agency, we'll be doing more of that, more UK stuff over the coming months. And we start with one of the biggest missions the UK's been involved with for a long time, the Rosalind Franklin Rover. Welcome to Stevenage. My name's Colin Painter. Uh, I'm the UK Managing Director at the home of Exo Mars Rover, the home of Rosalind Franklin, as she leaves for her journey from Stevenage to Mars. Well, that was from the press conference at Airbus in Stevenage just a couple of weeks ago, and it was celebrating the European Space Agency's Rosalind Franklin rover being sealed into its container and finally heading off and being shipped off for testing at Airbus in Toulouse. Now, the rover is due for launch in July next year as part of the joint ESA and Russian ExoMars 2020 mission. Subject, though to parachute testing in November. My name is Pietro Baglioni. I'm the ExoMars rover team leader at the European Space Agency. Now, there was um, said at this event that the one issue is just making sure that the parachutes are going to be okay, and that's going to happen in November. What is it that's not working yet or not completely 100%? In the parachute? Yeah. Yeah, we had a, a failure in the, during the extraction phase of the parachute during the test, and uh, the parachute itself uh, came out uh, ripped a bit, and this, of course, should not happen. So we are investigating uh, the root cause, and we are implementing a modification to, to, to make it work, to make it fixed. And you're doing these tests in America? We are doing these tests also in Europe now because they are tests on the ground that will be done. But the final test, yes, will be done in America. Not because uh, we cannot do it in Europe. We did it in Europe before, but uh, in the, the time of the year is such that we cannot use our facilities in Europe. So in November we have uh, an agreement with NASA to perform the test in, uh, in Oregon. The test shall demonstrate the full sequence of extraction of the parachute, in this case the supersonic parachute, and the uh, performance of the parachute as, as expected. And you're effectively and we using still, a weather balloon, you're going up Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a stratospheric uh, balloon that goes up to almost 30 k- kilometers, uh, so in the stratosphere, and then drop the test vehicle from which uh, 
according to a pre-selected automated sequence, extract the parachute, and then we see the test vehicle coming down with the parachute, and we recover the, the, the test vehicle uh, on the ground. And we can have a reading of the data during the parachute deployment, extraction deployment, as well as we analyze the data after recovery of the test vehicle on the ground to see that everything happened at the right speed, at the right load, and so on. Is there any danger that the failure of the parachute final testing could put the, the mission in jeopardy? Yes, yes, there is this danger, uh, unfortunately. So we have two time slots to do this test. One is in November, the other one is February. But uh, yes, if the parachute would uh, be still uh, problematic, uh, we should uh, reconsider launching 2020 because we are not going to launch something with some uh, weak points. We want to be absolutely sure that we do the best. The mission is difficult by itself. It's a complex mission. Everything has to go fine until the landing and the aggress of the rover. So we are not going to launch if we know that there is something still to be fixed. Well, good luck for November. I'm sure a lot of us, particularly here in the UK, will be uh, keeping yes. our fingers crossed for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Graham Turnock, Chief Executive, UK Space Agency. Now, there is some possibility that if the parachutes fail, the testing in November, that this will put the, the mission back. Are you sort of mentally prepared for yet more of a delay on this? Well, obviously, we don't want a delay. I mean, you know, the fact that there are natural two-year windows to go to Mars is a very good thing, but also a sort of bad thing in a sense. It's like a bus, you know. It's going to leave at a certain time. You really need to get on that bus, otherwise you're going to have a long wait. Um, so that really concentrates minds and means everybody is absolutely determined to overcome these obstacles otherwise it is a two-year wait so I mean I think given that you know given the collective understanding of the importance of hitting this deadline um, I think everybody's efforts will be you know thoroughly focused on uh, addressing problems and you know if it wasn't parachute it'd probably be something else I mean there are always challenges in the run-up to an important mission like this um, that's not to underestimate the challenges but there will always be challenges. Well, whenever it finally launches, this is the first Mars mission designed to look directly for evidence of past or present life. The rover is fitted with a drill capable of drilling two metres into the soil and instruments to analyse samples for signs of biology. Well, that means that the rover has to be completely free of contamination. So it's been put together in almost total sterile conditions. I went to see the final stages of construction at Airbus Defence and Space with Liz Seward, the company's senior space systems strategist. We're standing in the viewing area of the bio-burden controlled facility for the ExoMars rover. Now, so we're looking into this room. I would say it's about three storeys high, maybe the, the size of a, a five-a-side football pitch, lined with, I guess, stainless steel walls lots of bits of equipment and the people there are what five people in there and they are dressed head to toe in these white garments their faces are covered their eyes are covered and they've got sort of hoods over their heads and this is to just protect the room protect the mars rover from from us Yes, so we've built a, a super clean room. We blow air from the ceiling to the floor and much stronger than in, in other clean rooms so that we can keep it free of all the dust. And then we have sterile flight hardware comes in here. So by the time the rover pieces get here, they're very clean. And so then we will meet all the requirements for sending a clean rover to Mars 
But as you say, then the people have to build it. And the people are the dirtiest element of this process. And so we have a very strict gowning procedure to make sure that we really minimise the amount of... Basically, it's the skin that comes off you. A person can shed a billion flakes of skin in 24 hours. And on each of those flakes, you'll have uh, bacteria that, if they were to land on a rover, would actually grow into a colony. So you'd have a massive amount of contamination. So that's what we have to prevent. And given that this rover, its primary purpose is to look for signs of, of life, you don't want to take life to Mars? No, we really don't. There are international regulations on how clean something has to be to get to Mars so that you can preserve the science of Mars. And also, as you said, we are looking for signs of life and what we don't want to do is find life from Stevenage when we get to Mars. In terms of the the hardware in here, you're in the final weeks, final days of putting this all together. So just in front of us, they're making adjustments to the the solar panels, which will go on top of the rover. Yes, the solar panel forms the roof, really, of the rover body. It will also provide a seal so that everything inside, we call it the bathtub, the central structure that holds, it's the batteries, the computer, uh, and a lot of the instruments, and it's a golden colour, and it does look a lot like a fancy bathtub, so the nickname has stuck. So while they're doing this, they've just taken off the cover from the, the, the bathtub, if you like, the, the core of the Mars rover. And, I mean, you can see it's not empty by any means. It's full of wires and cables and all the modules, I guess. Yep, it's absolutely packed. We've used all the spare space. So it's got the instrument suite is in there, the uh, battery, the computer. There is a little tiny space, uh, in fact, two tiny spaces, because once it gets to Russia, and only there... They will actually have to take the solar arrays off one last time to put um, RHUs, radioisotopic heating units, because it's so cold on the Martian night we have to be able to keep the rover warm and batteries wouldn't actually give enough power to create enough heaters. So we have these little tiny elements that are very, very sealed and able to withstand a nuclear explosion, so there's not really any danger, but they produce just a constant low-level heat to keep the rover alive. Okay, so let's let's talk about the gear they're wearing because I'm intrigued by this. You've got this is a whole bag we've got here of just the equipment the people have to wear to go in. Yes. So if we pull some of this out, when you go into the the, the changing room, the dressing room, the only thing that you're allowed to keep on that's yours is your underwear. So you have to take all your clothes off in the changing cubicle and put on a pair of gamma-radiated tunic, uh, a, what sort of, um, trousers and top. It's really comfortable. It's like the softest, comfiest pair of pyjamas you've ever had. The next thing to do is to put on the gloves. If I give you a glove, this yeah. is, you have to meet the sterile gloving procedure. Okay, so this is like a rubber, a rubber glove. So it's an ordinary rubber glove, but the cuff is folded over, and that's the key part. The inside of the glove is allowed to be dirty, where it touches okay. your skin. So I can so hold you... that bit, which is the cuff folded over. But you may not touch the outside with your bare hands <laughs> because like it's sterile. The, the glove challenge. Okay, so I can put. So then you can put your hand, hand in and in. the glove on. Okay. But it's a, a little tricky because the only bit you can touch is that cuff. So there's oh, no really... working on of the fingers. This is really hard. <laughs> You go, you've been, people go on a course to do all this, don't they? Oh, yes, you do. You have to be qualified with the European Space Agency. So Look at my fingers. I should say we do have different sizes of gloves, right, okay, so we might have given you a smaller, smaller one. one. Okay. Well, so, in fact, you've got a little way. What you may now do is take yes. your second glove, if you can get a thumb released. Oh, no. Ah, right, yes. And then 
The second glove, again, the inside is dirty, but the outside is sterile. But mm. you're wearing sterile gloves. So in this one, you can hold the outside right. with... Yeah, the, so you can hold the inside with your dirty hand on the cuff, yeah. but you may touch the outside of the second glove right. with the first glove on your hand to help you get it on. Okay, right. So I can now use that. Yeah, right. And you can tuck these fingers but inside touch, the but cuff. No, with this glove, I can't touch the dirty bit. No, that. but you can slide those fingers inside the cuff to give you a little hand hold so that you uh, wiggle uh, oh, away. No, in. I've touched. I've... <laughs> I've touched the outside now. Ah, okay, right. So, so let's, let's, let's to give up on the gloves. Okay, so we take the gloves. Okay, it's off now. Okay. What I'm also intrigued is you've got the, the normal gown that you'd wear in a, in a clean room, but feet are completely covered. Yes. They're on and done up, so everything's, yes. everything's done together. And then you've got these hoods as well. Yeah, so, so you, imagine you've got your gloves on. The next thing you put on is your hairnet. A lot of contamination also comes from when you breathe and when you talk. So we have this mask with a... It has a sort of neck piece as well. Again, it comes all sterile, so you can open this. Okay, so um, I would open... Would I open this with my gloves? Yes, yes. Yeah, so, okay. so you have your, your Let's first assume I've got my gloves on. on. Okay, yeah. yeah. So you're now sterile. Okay. Right, so I can't use my teeth to open it. Now. <laughs> Absolutely right, okay, not. Right, okay. So I've got this open. It's a bit like a duck bill. Yeah. You've got the elastic that goes around your ears and, and the sort of the duck bill goes over your face and then there's a, a sort of mesh that hangs down It's like down a beard that hangs down from it. it. Yes. Yeah. Which, um, Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So how ludicrous do I look now? Do you feel like I've also got headphones on? <laughs> it's quite entertaining. <laughs> um, and then once you have that on, uh, you can... So this is quite, this is actually quite, I feel quite hot. It's actually, quite with that. impressive, actually. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and you have to wear that for four hours at a time. Liz Seward from Airbus, who's the, I'm going to say this again, the company's senior space systems strategist. Yes, I, I am amazed you managed to say that because there are a lot of S's. And I have a picture of uh, what I look like, and I'll put that on our various social media channels. Yeah. Essentially, a six foot duck. I was just going to say, it's, it's that you know, how long does it take on a take to put on a pair of gloves? It, it was extraordinarily difficult. Well, I think we could tell that. I think we could tell that. And uh, Sanjeev was sniggering away as we were were playing uh, that that piece there. It's it must be funny for you because you're at the sort of the other end, aren't you, of, it, of this? You don't need to wear sterile gloves or no, anything like that. I'm just excited about the data we're going to get back. I can't wait. It's really <laughs> so. Will you be, will you be um, also working on um, XMR's data? Yes. Then? So um, I'm actually going to be. In, it's going to 2021. It's going to be a horrible year or a lovely year because <laughs> I'm going to be on two missions. So I'm going to be on the. XMR's mission, but also in the NASA 2020 mission. Oh, wow. So I'm not really sure how I'm going to juggle I all hadn't, this. Do you know what? I hadn't actually realised you were on both. I yes. should, should have done my research, didn't I? That's <laughs> yeah. So I'm on, on the PanCam team for the XMR's And PanCam oh, is, course, is yes, this yes. Um, 3D camera that's going to sit. So it's a stereo, stereo camera. Stereo camera on the top. Um, multispectral, which is going to, again, give us the context for the landing site. So we're landing in a place called Oxia Planum. We've got a huge landing ellipse, and this area is, again, full of clay minerals, and that's why it was chosen. It's full of clay minerals, as detected from orbit. Um, But also what's really exciting about the place that uh, the Rosalind Franklin rover is going to is it's the oldest site that we will have visited on Mars when we get there. So it's this Noachian terrain. What does that mean? That that means, you know, 
the earliest epoch of Mars in some ways, so four billion years old, so um, much older than the rocks that Curiosity is sampling and that NASA 2020 will look at. And so, and this has been the great mystery, you know, that warm and wet early Mars. You know, clay minerals suggest lots of water rock interaction in a climate that was probably relatively warm, though there's huge debate about this, huge arguments about this. And so, not only do we have this search for life with this rover, but we also get a handle on early Mars climate, which is hugely debated because climate modelers can't seem to make Mars warm and wet early in its history, whereas the geologists see all this sort of evidence in the orbital imagery. And so I think we'll be able to get a real handle by using the PANCAM instrument and the other instruments to kind of characterize the, the geology, what are the sediment three rock types and what what is the chemistry of the rocks. So you must be the only person who who would I hate to say it but slightly welcome a potential delay in XMRs because then you wouldn't have to analyze both missions data at the same time. Um, that's okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether I can wait actually. Yeah. It's been a long time so I think it's yeah. it's going to be really exciting and you know we've got a really great team in the UK, lots of uh scientists, especially lots of young scientists actually involved. We've been doing rover trials. So we're all ready to go, actually, and yeah. you know. Going so we're actually, oh, Graham Turnock's been saying it's a bit like buses in terms of getting the right orbit and for your launch. Actually, it's a bit like buses for you in terms of your mission to right. yeah. come along. Yeah, yeah. You're going to be yeah, working but, on them. That's right. So yeah, Curiosity will still be going. So there's going to be three rovers. <laughs> that's going to be. Yeah. So where did it all go wrong for Mars then? If it was warm and wet, as the Earth was warm and wet, and we're st- it's still warm and wet, getting warmer, but yeah. it's warm and wet. What went wrong for Mars? Do we know definitively what, why, it, why it's so different now? I don't think we fully understand that. And again, that's one of the things that getting handled. So one of the ideas is that Mars lost its magnetic field and so couldn't retain an atmosphere, uh, which was easily then stripped. Um, um, but we don't, you know, these are all speculations. And I think, again... So obviously ExoMars, or some Franklin River, is, is, is like Curiosity. It's a drilling, albeit two metres. Which is uh, further than Curiosity. Oh, yeah. Curiosity only drills five centimetres. So yeah. This is a big, big difference. Yeah. So we'll get below the radiation damage zone. We'll analyse the chemistry and look for organics, etc., uh, which will be really exciting. But there's many things you can't actually do on Mars in terms of high-resolution chemistry analysis. And you know what? Scientists, and particularly geologists, really want to sample return. And so what NASA 2020 rover is going to be doing is actually caching samples in, in, you know, super clean tubes, about 15 grams of sample. Again, it's going to be drilling about five centimetres and the cores it's going to collect are going to be about a centimetre in diameter for future return to Earth. Now, we don't know when that's going to happen. We've got a feature, funnily enough, we've got a feature coming up on that okay. in just okay. a couple it's of minutes. almost as if it was planned. Almost yeah. as if it was <laughs> planned. So, so, we, so, so this mission is you know, really exciting in that it's going to a site called Jezero Crater, which is an ancient river delta, or uh, interpreted to be an ancient river delta, going into a crater lake. It's similar in some ways. You know, we've got lake deposits in Gale Crater, but the morphology, the geomorphology is much better preserved. It's really clear, and that's really important. And why Jezero was actually picked finally was that the 2020 mission has a very sharp timeline in which to collect samples. And so we have to know exactly where we're going. There's no room <laughs> for manoeuvre there. So, as I say, more on uh, the Mars Fetch rover in a second. So the rover that's going to be collecting 
these these samples. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find us on uh, various social media channels and we're going to run a competition to identify the audio in our new jingle. Yeah, there's one I think that's particularly difficult. Uh, you set a challenge like that to, to, to people and they'll definitely yeah. get it. But it's you... also the thing that took me ages to sort out. Oh, OK. It's a bit of a clue. I also want to point out that I did veto a couple of very sort of 1980s style effects in there that Richard got a little carried away what, with. What, I mean the... Yeah, I yeah. just said, please, no, no, no. <laughs> but there you go. OK, let's head back to Mars now. That's the sound of the steel wheels of one of the test rovers in the Mars yard at Stevenage, which is a large indoor sand pit, basically, where they're perfecting the motors and navigation systems. But what makes Rosalind Franklin different from previous Mars rovers is its ability to move autonomously, a bit like a self-driving car, effectively, albeit a very slow one. And with the clean room and expertise built up in Stevenage, the team's now planning a new rover, a fetch rover, as engineer Abby Hattie explains. It's going to be a very different size of rover and we have quite different requirements for it. So this is going to be a joint mission with NASA. Uh, A NASA rover that's actually launching alongside ours in 2020 is actually going to go and cache samples and we need to go and pick up those samples and bring them back. So we need to be able to drive long distances to pick up those samples, but we don't really need to stop and do science on the way, whereas ExoMars is doing its own science in its own right, and the journey is as much the destination as the destination. The sample fetch rover, the destination is the destination, so we're much more focused on driving. There won't really be any scientific equipment on board to do any analysis of samples, so that does give you quite a different kind of mass for your rover and different power constraints and things like that. Because obviously, this goes really slow. This does go really slow. So obviously, how slow does it go? Uh, about a centimetre a second when it's driving under its own steam. So that's quite hard to sort of work out what that really means. That means really travelling about seventy to a hundred metres a day. So you can go for speed, effectively, <laughs> in your next one. Well, we don't have to carry as much with us. So we'll be able to hopefully drive faster, drive further. And it's all just about navigating and driving rather than actually having to then stop and drill or do any other science when you're en route. So when, with this joint mission, because NASA obviously have the the supreme experience when it comes to, to Mars rovers. Will you be working with them in terms of learning from their successes or will you treat this as a very sort of separate European side of things? Obviously we'll be as collaborative as we can be because there's no point in not learning from everyone's joint experience. I think we will be basing a lot of our build on ExoMars and on the technologies and materials and processes that we've developed for this rover just because we have that knowledge within Airbus and within the UK and our our engineers have, I have, been part of those teams and we know how it all works. Anything that we can do in collaboration with NASA that they have skills in, then obviously we'll try and learn from that as well. So you've got um, the launch next year of... XMRs and then immediately straight into a it's it's quite exciting for you isn't it uh yeah I, I 
never thought I'd get the opportunity to work on something as exciting as a Mars rover in my career. So the idea of being able to work on two is fantastic. Like buses, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of spot the bus references in this, uh, this month's podcast. But it, it, it is it is pretty incredible. And, you know, like you were saying before, Sanjeev, I mean, it's it's amazing. I know it's a lot of work, but it's pretty oh, incredible. Yeah. It is just extraordinary to think that we're actually going to be collecting samples. It's probably the most expensive <laughs> samples ever, ever collected. The worry is, though, how do we get them back? And when do you get them back? Well, I think there's a plan in place. I don't think there's funding in place, but there's a plan in place to talk about it and, and you know, progress this. And I think it's good to have that plan because I think, you know, we're talking at least minimum of 10 years ahead. But I think, think about the analysis we could do. I mean, we're still doing incredible analysis on Earth for the samples that were collected from the moon just because new techniques you know, scientists don't get clever. It's actually the technology mm. develops. And so the ways that particularly the geochemists can analyse the samples will significantly improve. So we'll be able to do extraordinary things. And the key thing with the c- collection and caching of the samples from NASA Mars 2020 will be that obviously their one priority will be astrobiologically relevant samples. Um, so for Jezero, we'll be looking at lake mudstones, for example, um, to look for organics. But also Jezero has from orbit we can detect carbonates so um, calcium carbonate rich um, rocks we don't know how these formed we don't know what sort of context but carbonates are common in lakes on earth so potentially these could be really exciting rocks to look at and then there's a whole diversity of other things so obviously so hang on carbonates let me think back to my well this is a bit this, is a day, this ages me o level geography mm-hmm. sedimentary rock yeah can be formed by organisms. Yes. So, you know, our dream yes! is... Yes! <laughs> My biology degree wasn't worthless. <laughs> so, our dream is that, you know, there could be some sort of, you know, on Earth you get these um, uh, things called stromatolites, which are can be biogenic, don't necessarily have to be. There are uh, features in, that you see, in, particularly in very old rocks, and so, but you have them in the present day, and so... You know, the dream is that we find stromatolites in Jezero Crater. So that you would know, actually be more than a a single-celled organism, would it, potentially? Well, we don't know. Well, no, we don't we'll know. see. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what, what Jezero has is huge diversity of rocks. So the other thing is there's a, uh, there's a potential. So one of the things that geologists really want is rocks that they can date. It's very difficult to do on Mars. We've sort of done this on with Curiosity. Uh, but we'd really like to bring rocks back to date on Earth. I mean, that was a big thing on the moon, was to be able to date the the lava flows on, on, on the moon. So one of the key things, that, one of the reasons that Jezero was picked, that there's a, a, uh, some rocks in the crater that potentially could be an ancient lava flow. And if we could get a sample of that, we could actually get uh, a direct real age for that rock, which would you know, dramatically change our understanding of Mars's timelines, etc. But uh, it says a lot, though, doesn't it, about the technology and what's actually possible compared to what we're dreaming of. You know, we've had the, the movie The Martian, we've had these ideas to send people to Mars on one-way trips, had Elon Musk talk about going to Mars. You're actually just talking about bringing these tiny little samples back and not for another 10 years. So, yeah. you know, the capability to do that is quite a long way off. Yeah, I mean... The key thing is that we want to do science. We're not just going to Mars for a jolly. And I think that's sometimes forgotten in all of these dreams, etc., is that why do we actually go to Mars? We actually go to Mars in the first place to learn 
about the planet. Yes, because it's not your most favourable holiday destination, is it? I think it's a beautiful place to go to. It would be really incredible to go to it. But, you know, it it is. we're not going to spend huge amounts of taxpayers' money to just go for a jolly. And I think, why would you have a mission? You, you want to go and learn something scientifically, something that really propels us forward. And so there are two key aims in all of this. Is Firstly, obviously, this search for past or present life. But the other thing is to learn about early planetary evolution. And this is what makes Mars special, is that we have rocks very similar to Earth on Mars, but they're of an age that we don't see many of on Earth, because Earth has a plate tectonic cycle, so these really old rocks have been deformed and, you know, and there's not many of them around. Mars is covered in many, many huge percentage of rocks that are very, very old, and so we have a chance to uh, learn about early rocky planetary evolution. Looking ahead, though, to 10 years' time, assuming that we do have a mission that can bring back those samples from uh, the NASA 2020 mission, how would you study them? Because it's that process of, well, you've got to be very careful of contamination from oh, so Earth. The, as soon as would you just study them in situ within the cache? How would these you? will go into, you know, special facilities that people are thinking about now. Already, um, yeah. So very, you know, you wouldn't be allowed anywhere near them, and you probably wouldn't want to go anywhere near them, yeah. just in case. And obviously, tiny amounts of samples they would be distributed to labs or special facilities around the world. Um, would 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 the UK get one? I think the UK's interested. Are you going to get your hands on one? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it's not my. I'm not the expert in the geochemistry, so I think this is where I hand over mm-hmm. to others. As scientists, we hand things over. My job on both ExoMars, Rosalind Franklin, and the um, NASA 2020 mission is to make sure that during operations we collect the right data. Because you don't have a chance, second chance. You know, this is something we think about every day on the Curiosity mission. Have I collected the right data? Am I ready to drive on or do we need to collect more data? Because, you know, it takes many years to analyse that data. And obviously, much of it will actually be analysed by PhD students, maybe, you know, five, ten years down the line. So what we want to do is to make sure that we understand the context, the environmental context. Do we know what setting those rocks were formed in? Because... Once the rover's left a place, it's very difficult for it to go back. Yeah. It's not going to go back. Yeah. Brilliant. Now, this time 50 years ago, the Apollo 11 astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Mike Collins and Buzz Aldrin, were touring American cities to celebrate the moon landing and were about to head off around the world. Now, the victory lap came after three weeks in quarantine to protect the Earth from moon bugs. Now, the first part was spent in an Airstream trailer on board aircraft carrier USS Hornet. And today, Hornet's moored in Oakland, California, and they have one of the quarantine trailers on board, actually from the Apollo 14 mission. I was given a tour by museum trustee Bob Fish. It's a standard Airstream trailer hull, if you will, but it doesn't have wheels. It was built on an Air Force cargo pallet, uh, so they could be loaded on a cargo plane and flown around. Uh, and then it has special filtration system that filters all the air. So there's sort of a negative pressure, if you will, in there, so no air can get out of here, but it can come in, and anything going out is forced through the filters on the top up there to maintain the quarantine. One thing that one of the astronauts told me, though, was you have to... Everything is relative. Three guys were in that tiny little space capsule for seven to eight days, crawling all over each other, no privacy, no sleep. So this actually looked like the Taj Mahal to them. When they came inside here and there was 
bunks. They had their own bunks. They had a toilet. They had a shower facility. They had a nice place to eat real food. I mean, to them, this, this was the Taj Mahal. And it's rather beautiful on, on the outside. It's got that beautiful Airstream trailer, sh- trailer shape, that gleaming metal on the outside. Uh, the moon germs keep it that way. Every once in a while it starts getting crusted over and all of a sudden we come in one day and we find the bugs all working away and keeping it going. Yes, it's a standard Airstream outside. And, and by the way, the process of keeping it clean is called walburnizing. So if you have Airstream people listening, they'll immediately recognize what we do with this when we have to restore it. We walburnize the outside, which is sort of a waxing thing that keeps it looking sharp. So is it uh, aluminium? Yes. So let's go inside. And the design of this, it's almost like... Um Entering an aircraft, isn't it? Entering an aircraft fuselage, the, the whole design of the, the airstream. And then you come inside, and it, it's like a bedroom. It's like a, a bunkhouse one way with a kitchen area. And then the other side, there's a, a table with uh, six comfy chairs around it. That's right. This is the lounge. Back to your comment about looking like an airplane, and that's for a reason. Wally Byam, who started the Airstream Corporation, reflected on the fact that how aircraft were built and their design was very aerodynamic and so he wanted to incorporate that very same design in mobile homes knowing or, or trailer trailers knowing that they were, when they were being pulled along it would uh, make them more aerodynamic so this was specifically built with the idea of a hull of an airplane in mind just no wings give me the tour if you were the estate agent selling this to a prospective astronaut what what have you got here i mean it is actually quite spacious yeah i mean it's so it's got a nice lavatory in the back with a stand-up shower and it's got a uh, a sink and a heater and it's got six bunks people can stay in it for uh six people can stay in it for up to 10 days it's got storage facilities and then here you have a kitchen with a sink on top and the original countertop microwave oven was built for the apollo program for the mqf because they knew that they were going to give them food that had been pre-prepared before they came back so, so hang on so there's a microwave oven there which actually i mean it looks a bit industrial but it's essentially similar size similar shape similar door to a modern microwave so th- that was actually invented the sort of things we have in our kitchens for this that's right the countertop aspect um NASA went to Litton Industries, who had giant walk-in type microwave ovens with the people would cook for Kentucky Fried Chicken, 100 chickens or 1,000 chickens at a time, and asked them to shrink it down so that it could be fit inside a place like this or the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. So initially, Litton shrunk it down. They put one in here, and the first time the guys tried it, they put some eggs in there, and they hit start, and it just exploded the eggs because they hadn't shrunk down the power. They'd only shrunk down the size. Uh, so there's some really funny things. But, yeah, countertop microwave ovens owe their, owe their uh, provenance to the Apollo program. And there's a, a table here. almost looks like a, a briefing table or a, a conference table. And the seats almost, again, they've got that sort of aviation look to them. They wouldn't be out of place in, a, in, in the uh, fuselage of an aircraft. And that's where they came from. Yes, yeah, so the, seats, uh, the seats are borrowed from um, a private uh, high-performance aircraft. I mean, well, back in the day, I mean, uh, Beechcraft seats is what they are, and so that they can sit uh, horizontally or vertically. So, if, and they have seat belts and they have oxygen masks in here. So, if you're in the hold of a cargo plane like a C-141, for takeoff, you would sit forward in your seat. You'd have your seat belt fastened, and of course, the oxygen masks are overhead. And when the plane took off, if something messed up and you were depressurized, the oxygen mass would fall out and you'd just sit here and fat and happy while you're flying along. Of course, because although they started in here on the ship, this has obviously got to be taken back to Houston where they can go into a a larger quarantine facility with the moon rocks. So this has got to go in an aircraft. That's right. So the, the ship actually took the astronauts back to Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. 
and the air base, Hickam Air Base, is a couple of miles from where Pier Bravo is, which is where the ship parked. And so the, this entire MQF, still sealed, was loaded off the ship, was put into a cargo pallet loader, if you will, driven over to Hickam Air Base, and then shoved in the back of a C-141 cargo plane, which then took off for Ellington Air Force Base in Houston, Texas. From there, same thing, they drove the whole MQF over to the Lunar Receiving Laboratory at Johnson Space Center, and then they opened the hatch, this hatch, backed it up, they opened the LRL hatch, and the three guys zipped out and went into the rest of their quarantine. And for all that time, there's the three astronauts, so Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Mike Collins, and there's also a doctor with them all the time. Anyone else? There were, there were two additional people besides the astronauts. Dr. William Carpentier was the flight surgeon for Apollo 11 and also for other flights. And he also went on the worldwide tour with them, by the way. He was their personal physician for a long time. And then uh, John Hirosaki was the NASA MQF technician. So he's the one that ran this patch panel back here. He would flip all the switches if you needed to have if you needed to talk on the telephone and it was local, he'd flip one switch. If you needed to talk with the President of the United States, he'd flip another switch and so on and so forth. So John Hirosaki and Bill Carpenier and then the three astronauts were in here for 52 hours. I was going to mention the control panel because this is not what you would have in a standard caravan or a, a, a tra- your average Airstream trailer. So uh, across one wall, there's this vast control panel with uh, with switches and, and dials and, and lights and then some more dials above that. So that's essentially a, a control... I mean, this is almost like a, a little spacecraft. It's almost certainly like a, you know, a self-contained environment in that respect. You're absolutely right. That's exactly what it is, a self-contained environment. And um, so you can have sh- ship power... You can have shore power. You can have power from the aircraft if you're in it. And, oh, by the way, if that all fails, we have our own generator here so we can build power ourselves. We can generate power ourselves. So that's what all these switches and gauges are is to make sure we have power to keep the filters getting rid of the moon germs that were suspected to be there. It sounds silly now, but there was no reason why it would be a silly idea at the time that there were moon germs, that they would bring back something deadly to Earth. Well... And it's going to happen again. So let's look forward to when we bring back some rocks from Mars. I mean, we're going to have the same issue with Martian rocks. There may be pathogens on Mars that could interact with life here on Earth as we know it. And so, in fact, those Martian rocks will have to be quarantined as well with the astronauts who bring them back. We're going to go through this exact same thing again in the 2023-2024 time frame as we did back in 1969-1970. What was it like for the astronauts living in here? I mean, in a way, they were isolated from, I mean, the media, the, the whole, the fuss. I mean, it was almost like a, a period of, of calm before the, the media storm. Yes, you're absolutely right. In fact, Neil Armstrong reflected on that quite, quite, quite at length. They needed the time to sort of decompress, to think about what it is they really did. They, they, they didn't experience the Apollo 11 flight like we did here on Earth. They were doing it. They were in the middle of it. They were doing their job. They were actually following a script minute by minute, not second by second, be here, do this, take this picture kind of thing. So it wasn't until they got back here and away from the maddening crowd, if you will, that they were able to sit down and write their reports and read newspapers and reflect on the fact that some guys walked on the moon. And they did look at each other and say, dang, we missed it. <laughs> so it did serve a purpose. But, but I will also tell you, um, this is a shout-out to those guys. They were former military people doing a mission and so to them this adulation was quite a surprise and not necessarily really you know wanted they did their job they took the beachhead now they returned back to their homeland um 
they understood maybe being famous for a day or two, but they never really wanted uh, all the adulation and fame that they got. They were just really people who really did their job right. Bob Fish, you can hear more about Hornet's role in the recovery of Apollo 11 in our series for Audible. It's called The Space Race, narrated by Kate Mulgrew. So you have to go to the Audible website, you have to sign up, but actually you could sign up for just 30 days for free. Just don't tell anyone that. <laughs> I think most of our friends have done that. Done that, that yes. Say, just remember just to so cancel your subscription yeah, if you yeah, do that. Yeah. Um, uh, one final word, uh, Sanjeev. Just done. It was really interesting that you know we talk about Mars and bringing contempt. Well, first of all, we talk about taking possible contamination to Mars, avoiding mm-hmm. that. You'll talk about bringing samples back, which could potentially contaminate the Earth. It's kind of relearning those lessons, isn't it, from from the Moon and keeping things in quarantine. Yeah, I think, as, as you can see, that these rocks won't be kept in an airstream. Trailer. <laughs> They're going to have to be something much more significant than that. But, um, I mean, it's just so exciting because, you know, what we can actually do, you know, for example, at the present day, I can, for my terrestrial work on Earth, for example, I collect sand from Himalayan rivers and I can actually work out by analysing those sand grains where the, which where the river was coming from in the Himalayas. I can actually, you know, date individual sand grains as zircon grains and work out where that, that's called a provenance analysis. And we'll be able to do all this sort of analysis with these Martian rocks, you know, work out the details of the geology um, in incredible detail. And it's just so exciting. Yeah, sounds it. And uh, thank you very much for joining us, Sanjeev Gupta from uh, Imperial College London. It's been lovely to have you on again. It's great. Thank you very much. Well, that's the Space Boffins podcast. Um, We'd like to also thank the UK Space Agency for supporting us. Uh, do look us up on, on social media share the podcast rate the podcast if you like that would be super but if you listen this far presumably you like it so <laughs> say say you like it that would be great and uh, we'll be back next month thanks for listening Botox Cosmetic out of botulinum toxin A FDA approved for over 20 years so talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you for full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.